Chapter forty two of the Grell Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. The Grell Mystery by Frank Froust. Chapter forty two. But that his breath came a little faster, Fairfield gave no sign of the perturbation that Heldon Foyle's presence caused him, that the summons to Scotland Yard had been a pretext to get him out of the way was now obvious. The only question was whether Roberts had divulged anything to the detective during his absence. It was quite impossible to allow Grell's visit to him to be used in the investigation. That was not in the bargain with Foyle. Innocent or guilty, his friend had trusted him, and to use that trust to hound him down would savour of treachery. There was no doubt that Foyle knew something. He wondered how much. He returned his visitor's greeting. "'Always glad to see you, Mr. Foyle, though I'm afraid there's nothing fresh so far as I'm concerned. I see my man's made you comfortable. There's been a mistake somewhere. I've been to Scotland Yard waiting for you.' His head was in the shadow, and Foyle could not see his face. He could not be sure whether the words were a challenge, and made little gesture with his hand. "'That's a pity,' he said. "'Things have got muddled up somehow. However, now we're here, it's all right. By the way, we narrowly missed laying our hands on Grell an hour or two ago.' Although he was staring placidly into the fire, he did not fail to note the quick start that the baronet gave, and it was not a feigned start. Fairfield could not understand this indirect method of attack. "'What?' he stammered. "'You nearly arrested him.' "'It was touch and go,' said Foyle languidly. "'Some of our men got on his trail and followed him until he reached here. They never saw him come out.' "'Do you mean to say that Grell has been here, here to-day?' demanded Fairfield, putting as bold a face on the matter as was possible. "'I do,' said Foyle quietly. "'Without my knowledge?' Heldon Foyle shook his head, and, thrusting his hands into his jacket-pockets, faced the baronet squarely. "'That's what I want to know. Was it without your knowledge, Sir Ralph?' Fairfield met that searching gaze unflinchingly. There was a touch of hauteur in his tone when he replied, "'Do you suggest that I am hiding him?' Had Foyle not been sure of his facts, the manner of the baronet might have convinced him that he was in error. As it was, he ignored the evasion. It was essential to know whether the fugitive had been supplied with any money, and whether he had given any indication of his plans.' "'I feel quite certain that you have had a talk with him lately,' he said. "'I thought you were going to do what you could to help us clear up this mystery. "'Why deny a fact that is plain?' "'Sir Ralph clenched his teeth. "'It was clear that Foyle was certain of his ground, "'that it was no use any longer trying to throw dust in his eyes. "'Well,' he demanded icily, "'I suppose I am not entirely a spy at your disposal, Mr. Foyle. "'I am like most men. I have my limits. "'I prefer to remain master of my own actions.' "'I should be the last to dispute it,' said Foyle, with a slight bow, "'or to take advantage of the good nature that has led you to assist us hitherto. "'Of course you could not foresee that Grell would come to you, "'and you naturally do not want to take advantage of his confidence. "'But we already know of his visit, so there is no breach of trust there. "'All I ask is that you should simplify the matter by telling me what occurred at your interview. "'Perhaps you have forgotten, Sir Ralph, that there is a punishment for assisting a man to escape "'by lending him money or otherwise. "'That is merely for information. It is not a threat.' "'Thank you,' said the other. "'It would make no difference to me whether it was a threat or not.' He remained in thought for a moment. The fact that Grell had entered the place and apparently got clear away had led him to believe that the police knew nothing of the visit, that the only risk of the interview being disclosed lay with Roberts. If the detectives had really been close on the heels of the fugitive, as Foyle said, it could do no harm to admit the truth. His promise to say nothing could hardly be considered to cover the contingency. "'Has Roberts been talking to you?' he asked abruptly. "'Roberts?' repeated the superintendent, with a puzzled frown. "'Oh, of course, he's your servant. I asked him one or two questions, but he didn't seem to understand me.' The answer was so quick, so naturally given, that any suspicion that remained in Fairfield's mind was lulled. He shrugged his shoulders. 
"'Well, for what it's worth, I don't mind admitting that Grell did come to see me. All he wanted was money. He is frightfully hard up, and apparently the operations of your people have harassed him dreadfully.' "'Did you let him have any money?' Fairfield shook his head. "'No, I absolutely refused unless he would come out of concealment and try to justify himself. With that, he went. He was here less than twenty minutes or half an hour.' The detective played with his watch-chain. "'Yes, yes, I don't see that you could have done anything else. I suppose you made no suggestion to him.' "'In what way?' Gently stroking his chin, Foyle answered in a soft voice, "'The other day a man came to see me. He was a man of high social standing, and had fallen into the clutches of a gang of blackmailers. He wanted us to take action, but he absolutely refused to go into the witness-box to give evidence. I pressed him, pointing out that that was the only way in which we could bring home anything against them. It will ruin me,' he declared. "'Is there no other way it can be put a stop to?' I replied that we were helpless. "'What can I do?' he cried. "'Is the thing they accuse you of true?' I asked. He flushed and admitted that it was. "'Well,' I said, "'if you ask my advice as a man and not as an official, I should meet with an accident.' "'But he would not take my advice,' he concluded, with a keen glance at the baronet, on whom the parable was not lost. "'I did suggest that way out,' admitted the baronet reluctantly. "'He wouldn't hear of it, and Grell is not a coward. "'He gave no hint of where he was going when he left you. "'Not the slightest.' Foyle picked up his hat. There was nothing more of value to be gained by prolonging the interview. "'I am very much obliged to you, Sir Ralph,' he said. "'Perhaps you will keep in touch with me in case anything arises. Good morning.' Long ago Foyle had made up his mind as to the probable course that would be taken by Robert Grell. The man was evidently driven into a corner, or he would scarcely have taken the enormous risk of going to see Ralph Fairfield. There remained two things, the detective reasoned, which he might now do. Penniless and without help, he might try to plunge back into the obscurity of underground London.' or he might try some other friend or acquaintance, but every person he confided in would increase his risk. Fairfield was his closest friend, and yet he had declined to lift a finger. Would he go to men he was less intimate with, or would he endeavour in person to enlist the aid of the woman he was to marry? No one knew better than Heldon Foyle the danger of jumping to conclusions. Inferences, however clever, however sound they may seem when they are drawn, are apt to lead one astray. The detective who habitually used the deductive method would spend a great deal of his time exploring blind alleys. Yet Foyle, with the unostentatious Maxwell at his right hand, hurried in the direction of Berkeley Square with a hope that his theory might not be ill-founded. A little distance away from the Duke of Burley's house, he crossed the road and spoke to a cabman who was lounging on the seat of his motionless vehicle. Curiously enough, the constables patrolling the beat did not order that particular cabman away to a rank, although he had been there for several hours, creating a technical obstruction. "'Have you seen a man call over the road lately?' asked the superintendent. "'No, sir,' answered the cabman alertly. "'The only person has been a messenger boy with a note for Lady Eileen Meredith. "'He told me it had been handed in at the district messenger office at Victoria. "'Lady Eileen came out shortly afterwards and walked away in the direction of Piccadilly. "'Phillips has gone after her.' "'Right. Report to the yard directly she returns and keep a sharp lookout.' "'Very good, sir,' said the cab-driver, and Foyle turned away to mount the steps of the house. "'The footman who answered the door replied that both his grace and the Lady Eileen were out.' He could not say when they would return. The superintendent tapped the step impatiently with the tip of his well-polished American boot, and his brow puckered. Finally he produced a card. "'I think I had better wait,' he said. "'My business is important.' That procured his admission into the house, but he had no idea of waiting in idleness in one of the reception rooms. Eileen had received a note which had taken her out. He shrewdly suspected that it was from Grell. It was conceivable, though it was not probable, that she might have left it about. It was for him to learn the contents of that note, if possible.' 
"'Look here, old chap,' he said with an assumption of familiarity that flattered the frigid footman. "'I want to see Lady Eileen directly she comes in, and I don't want to be announced.' He winked as though from one man of the world to another. "'You understand, don't you?' The footman grinned knowingly as he thrilled all over with the knowledge that the Scotland Yard man was making a confidant of him. It was one of Foyle's ways always to attach as many people as he could to his object. He had an extensive acquaintance with waiters and hotel hall porters. "'Yes, sir, I think I can arrange that,' said the footman. "'I can put you in her own sitting-room, and she'll most likely go straight there when she comes back.' "'That's the ticket,' said Foyle. "'I like a man who's got brains.' A sovereign changed hands. "'Now, if you ever hear anything, perhaps you'll let me know. Drop into my office when you're by, and have a chat and a cigar.' "'I will that, sir,' said the man. "'Thank you, sir.' Heldon Foyle was left alone in the room. He sat quite still for a little, but his eyes were busy. At last he rose and aimlessly paced the floor once or twice. In the grate a dull fire was burning, and a few fragments of blackened paper lay on the dying coals. Here and there a word stood out in a mouldy grey against a black background. Foyle did not touch the paper till he had read, "'Both, minute, sufficient money to aid for Petrov, guest, fear, timidly exposure must come, if—' open check, their gold, and bring, God's sake, desperate. Foyle's lips puckered into a whistle as he transferred the words to his pocket-book. He dared not touch the fragments till he had done so, and every moment he feared that some draught might destroy the whole thing. His keen professional instincts were saddened by the impossibility of saving what might be an important piece of evidence. Under favourable circumstances there might have been some chance of retrieving and preserving it by blocking the chimney to prevent a draught, and then carefully sticking the burnt fragments with gum onto transparent paper, but that method was impossible. Foyle tried gingerly to rescue the fragments, but a burst of flame frustrated him, and a moment later they were destroyed. An ejaculation of annoyance escaped his lips, and he turned to the dainty little desk at another portion of the room. It was locked, but that was a matter of little consequence. Like most detectives, Foyle carried a bunch of keys rather larger than are to be found in the possession of the ordinary man, and the fourth that he tried fitted. The neat interior slab of the desk was clear and tidy. One or two letters of no consequence reposed in an inside drawer, and these the superintendent replaced. A footstep outside caused him hurriedly but noiselessly to close the desk and resume his seat, sitting idly with crossed legs. But the interrupter passed, and he returned to the desk. From a recess he drew out a cheque-book and examined the counterfoils of the used cheques with interest. The last counterfoil was blank. "'Ah!' he muttered with a jerky little nod of satisfaction, and turned his attention to the blotting-pad. A few minutes' close inspection, and he drew the top-sheet away, and, rolling it up, placed it in the breast-pocket of his overcoat. Again he closed the desk and glanced at his watch. A touch at the bell summoned the footman. "'I don't think I'll wait after all,' said Foyle. "'Time's getting on, and I've several things to attend to. "'Shall I tell Lady Eileen you called, sir?' "'Oh, yes, certainly. Tell her I'll call back about six this evening.' In deep thought, Heldon Foyle sauntered away from the house, and Maxwell joined him as they turned a corner. The superintendent said nothing till they reached Piccadilly, then he tore a sheet of notepaper from his pocket-book and handed it to his companion. "'Cut along up to the Metropolitan and Provincial Bank, Maxwell. A cheque, number A834076, for £200, signed Burley, has been presented this morning. Find out who cashed it and how it was paid. If there were any notes, get their numbers and come straight on to me at the yard.' The superintendent swung himself onto a passing motor-bus and selected a seat on top, with his brain still revolving the events of the morning. Once he took out a pencil and drafted a description of Grell's appearance and dress as Roberts had seen him. As a matter of course, he intended that to be telegraphed and telephoned to his men all over London. It was as well not to neglect any precaution. 
He was passing through the little back door which leads to the quarters of the CID when he came face to face with a young man bearing all the appearance of a clerk who was just passing out. "'Hello, Phillips,' he exclaimed. "'You've been after Lady Eileen, haven't you? What luck did you have?' "'I've just reported to Mr. Green, sir,' was the answer. "'She walked to the Metropolitan and Provincial Bank and took a taxi when she came out. "'I followed in another cab, but my man punctured a tyre in the Strand, and I missed her.' Foyle frowned and gripped the man's arm. "'Come upstairs with me and tell me all about it. What number was her taxi?' "'County Council LD 6132, Police 28293. "'Mr. Green has got the name of the driver from the Public Carriage Department, "'and I was just going out to see if I could get hold of him.' "'Right, you get along then, and don't forget that if you miss people like that again, accident or no accident, there'll be trouble.' Green was waiting for his chief. A question elicited the steps he had taken to get hold of the driver of the cab, from whom some account of Lady Eileen's movements might be expected. An all-station message had been flashed out, asking that the cab, wherever it was sighted, should be sent, unless still carrying a passenger, to Scotland Yard. There was little chance of the driver neglecting to obey the summons. "'It's unlucky that our man failed to keep her in sight,' said Foyle. "'I'll bet a hundred to one that she's arranged to meet Grell somewhere. "'However, there's nothing to do now but to wait. "'Just look here, Green. "'Here is something I picked out of the lady's fire. "'Help me, and we'll see if we can reconstruct the entire message.' "'He laid his pocket-book containing the string of disconnected words on the desk as he spoke. "'The two bent over them.'" End of chapter 42